Welcome to the fifth season of the Memory Alpha podcast. We are celebrating the 20th anniversary of Memory Alpha. I'm Florian and together with Jan, we started the German Memory Alpha back in 2004. The original, the English Memory Alpha started in November 2003. And that's why today or in this year, 2023, it's the 20th anniversary Today we have great guests. We have Schisma or Alex, who is a German memory alpha archivist. We have an author, Andy, who wrote the book We Have Engaged the Borg. And we have the great Bernd Schneider, who is webmaster of the great Star Trek website Ex Astris Scientia. Alex, let, let's start with you. You are known as Schisma in Memory Alpha. Can you tell me a little bit more about you? I think I joined in the early aughts somewhere. I think I learned about uh, uh, the existence of Wikipedia and I found it an interesting idea. And I thought uh, there should be something like that about, about Star Trek because there was a huge tracking back then. Like, yeah, I, I think I just googled Wikipedia Star Trek and it was the first thing that came up. And there was also a German version. I don't know. I, I got into vector graphics software and I thought I could contribute the vector graphics. Then I became administrator. And I also do remember uh, the great uh, graphics uh, that you created from all the different chips and made these as an attribution to all the pages. Andy, what about you? Uh, do you have any connection to Memory Alpha? And no official connection outside of a big fan, uh, big user. You know, I, I couldn't have written the book without the resources such as Memory Alpha, Memory of Beta, and of course, Bernd's, uh fantastic Wolfie 59 overview from EAS. Uh, on, honestly, without that, this would have been nigh on impossible. You know, having that sort of a resource to hand where you can go through the website and check and cross-reference and just 60 years effectively worth of canon and, and then all of the stuff in the books as well and in the computer games and in the DC comics. Because yes, I have references to all of those. Uh, in the book, you know, and just trying to create a cohesive narrative. Yeah, we already mentioned Bernd. I think he doesn't need any introduction, but for those who don't know him, this uh, great page is a vast collection of uh, all of Star Trek. This is uh, predating Memory Alpha mm -hmm. as one of the mm -hmm. sources for all Star Trek knowledge stuff. And uh, yeah, he hosts several subpages actually, like uh, Masao Kazaki's uh, Starfleet Museum, Advanced Starship Design Bureau, Journal of Applied Technology, and Canon Fodder. And one of the pages is actually about the Wolf 359 research project. Bernd, how uh, did uh, any of these uh, projects start? Uh, so it all started in uh, 1998, uh, but maybe I have to go a bit uh, further back to 1996 when first contact uh, came out and I was uh, just connected to, to the internet uh, at the university. What do you do? You you search for things that uh, that interest you and just typed Star Trek and uh, oh, there's there's already stuff on on the new movie and uh, that that got me uh, really hooked at the at the time. I looked up the daily uh, news on on the movie. At some point, I decided okay, uh, I I want to do my own thing. And I uh, created EAS, started 
very small with uh, like a few hundred kilobytes of uh, of data. So the uh, side projects you, you already mentioned, Jan, uh, they were created, I think, from 1998 to 2005. Uh, so still here uh, after uh, 25 years. And you are only doing it by yourself or do you have contributors? Do, do you have a team, a group of uh, helpers mm. or mm. how does it work with Exastris? Mm. Yeah. A lot of contributors. Actually, the, the most important one is, is no secret. It's uh, Jörg Hillebrand. You already talked with him. It was a most entertaining video, what I saw so, uh, so far. Of course, he still knows a lot more than I do. Uh, he, he notices the, the tiniest details in episodes that uh, that no one else catches. And, uh, of course, that is in, invaluable. And uh, he contributed the um, alien articles, the uh, TNG observations, most of the articles on symbols and logos. We usually work together in a way that he writes up something, packs images uh, into his email and, and sends it to me. So, uh, so I do the conversion to, to HTML. And Xastris is only dealing with the canon content of Star Trek, no. is it? Yeah, so so everything with the uh, black, uh, formerly black background, now uh, a dark gray. So that is uh, so that deals with uh, with the canon uh, Star Trek and the the other projects uh, 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 like uh, 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 Starfleet Museum uh, or uh, Advanced Starship Design Bureau. Uh, they have a distinct design and uh, they are. Uh, uh, Fan fiction. Uh, speaking of fan fiction, Andy, you already talked in the previous uh, discussion we had before the recording, talked a little bit about uh, Canon and Voyager, for example, that there were some problems with the uh, Canon uh, story. Uh, problems with Star Trek Voyager and Canon. <laughs> let's, let's not go. Uh, let's, let's, not, let's not go kicking. Let's not go kicking that anthill just right now. It's, it's still quite early in the day, and I don't have a beer with me. One of the things when you're trying to weave sixty odd years of Star Trek canon into a single narrative um, is uh, the writers, for the large part, will, will obey uh, a single creed: is that you know they want to tell a story they want to tell. They're not going to get too hung up on the canon. You know, obviously, Spock is a Vulcan. Kirk is captain of the Enterprise for that period. The Enterprise is a Constitution-class starship. These, these are facts, and, and these will remain. But everything around the edges, they're not going to let that get in the way of telling a story. So, so when it came to Voyager and Voyager being off in the Delta Quadrant, eventually they came up against the Borg. We all knew what was going to happen, you know, and so it did so. But then what you started having was, um, you know, uh, there was the episode uh, Infinite Regress, I think it is, where um, Seven of Nine starts manifesting all these personalities that people have been assimilated. And all of a sudden, she's talking about a civilian ship in the middle of Wolf 359. And it's like, okay, uh, why is there a civilian ship in the middle of Wolf 359? I've got to account for that now. I've got to, you know, explain what that was doing there. Because uh, what, what I tried to do with a book, and I, I think this is perhaps similar to, to Burns' philosophy on the site, is you want to treat it like it's a real universe. You want to treat it like these are real starships that, you know, that, that things make sense to an extent. Part of the fun for me was trying to explain, you know, why were the civilians on the ships at Wolf 359? Um, why did they only send 40 starships when demonstrably three years later they have thousands upon thousands of starships? You know, you can't build ships that quickly. So where did they all come from or where did they go even? Yeah. Uh, and, and yeah, it was, um, 
the challenge of just when you thought you had your narrative locked and I knew what ships were going to be at 359 and the stories, then along comes an episode of Star Trek Voyager and a guy says he was on the Excalibur that was assimilated in late 2360. And it's like, well, the Excalibur is not a Wolf 359. So where did that happen? And then I had to go off and weave that in, which was actually quite a fun little side story. You're not going to go into a book and you say, ah, well, you're, you know, you're, you're wrong here because this didn't happen because it's not in, in the thing. I mean, I can give you the most egregious example, if you want, is uh, the USS Endeavour. Now, the USS Endeavour, a lot of people will cite as this is the ship which survived Wolf 359 because Janeway quotes a log from a Captain Amazov. And in the log, he quotes that uh, in his opinion that the Borg are the most evil uh, beings as close to evil as you possibly can do. Well, everyone takes that as, oh, well, you see, the Endeavour's the ship which survived Wolf 359. But there's nothing in the log which says it was the ship that survived Wolf 359. And then there's no evidence outside of that. So I made a different creative choice there. And uh, the three comments I get on this book more than any other, seriously, are number one, the USS Endeavour was the ship with survival 359. Number two, the Akira-class starship was built to destroy, to fight the Borg. It didn't come around any earlier than that. And there was no Parliament-class starships prior to their appearance at 2380, because it would appear that a lot of Star Trek fans don't have image permanence. So if you don't see it, it doesn't exist. Mm-hmm. And speaking about yeah. um, not seeing it, uh, so how did you approach um, this? Uh, did you first uh, pull up a couple of memory alpha articles and then go back to watching the episodes um, to confirm or was it the other way around? So, uh, you know, I grew up uh, as a huge Star Trek fan. You know, I saw Best of Both Worlds back in, well, it was his first one in the UK. So that was probably around 92, 93, something like that. So, you know, it's been living rent-free up here for, you know, close to 30-odd years. Um, Burnside was a huge inspiration when you, you know, because he has the uh, the Wolfie Five research project where he's gone through and identified not only all the ships which are mentioned in canon that we see are there, but also the remains of the ships which are in there. So, you know, but, you know they always use studio models and the, the Constitution class hull from Star Trek Three, and, you know, that kind of gives you some more there. But, you know, I think it only comes to... It, it, is it about 20, 22 in total? It's, it's something like that. Yeah. You know, mm. After that, it mm. just kind of, I asked the question of, well, that's, that's, that's some of the ships at Wolf 359. There was 40 ships there. Where are the rest of them? So um, that just kind of started the little, the little gray cells started yeah. forming. And I wanted mm. to know the other ships. And then once I had that, I was like, okay, well, a, a lot of this um, book came around from just pulling on a thread. Like I said earlier, you know, you have to explain why they only sent 40 ships to Wolf 359. When, when you get to the Dominion War, which is, what, four or five years later on, they have fleets of thousands of starships with galaxy mm-hmm. wings and Excelsiors and, and all this going on there. So, so, so what happens in between? How, how do you get from 40 starships, huge blow to the Federation, you know, it, it's effectively game over to, yeah, we're just, you know, Battle of Chintoka, ships blowing up all over the place. Mm-hmm. And you start pulling on this thread and trying to explain it and try to make sense of it. And treating it as a real world, what would happen? And then mm. it snowballed a little bit. And next thing you know, I have 500 pages of yeah. um, <laughs> Borg stuff. Mm. Just one question. Uh, what, what do you make of the USS Constance? The USS Constance didn't bother me too, too much because I, well, I, I'll give you a story about Picard season three. Yeah. <laughs> so, so when Picard season three was about to drop, I have a number of friends who were privileged enough to receive screeners for season three. So all of a sudden, I've got them coming up to me saying, oh, they talk about Wolf 359 in the, in, in, in the new season, thinking I'm going to be ecstatic and I'm going to be really excited. You know, I'd kind of done the bulk of the story. I was deep in editing at that point. Uh, no, I was terrified because all of a sudden it's like, what do I do? 
you're touching Wolf 5 now, are we time traveling back to it? Are you going to retcon a load of it? Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. uh, and then, in, uh, I, I mean, the constant's fine because, you know, it's a constellation class starship, you know, it's period appropriate to be there. And, you know, we have a lot of ships. We yeah. could do it. I, I just renamed another starship, which I'd already put in my ban mm. oh, okay. uh, mm. things. Yeah. No, what, what annoys me more about Picard season three is, um, this virus that, uh, apparently showed up in episode one, but changed everything to a free. And it's just like, okay, fine. So, um, mm. I have, I have a throwaway line in Everett Shelby saying it was stupid. It didn't affect anything. We rebooted from backups and then we were fine, but it was just like, mm. It seemed lazy, but yeah, the constants didn't bother me. (laughs) Why did you want to write a book about Wolf 359 in particular? It's, in my opinion, it's the most pivotal moment in the history of Star Trek. To draw the analogy to the real world, it's the equivalent of Pearl Harbor or or 9-11. You know, in in terms of the impact on the world of Star Trek, it it is a key moment. And it's a key moment for two reasons. One is, you know, in-universe. Um, the Federation goes from effectively like 70 years of peace where, you know, it was the top, it, it was the top tier power in the Alpha Quadrant. Nothing could really touch it. Uh, and, and it was effectively untouchable. You had, you know, the 2360s, the early 2360s are this golden age for the Federation where they're building huge research ships to go out and, you know, explore, uh, the, the galaxy and everything after Wolf 359 though, you know, things start to, I suppose we could say mirror what's happened in the real world, you know, in, in, in the 21st century, where that moment where it felt like we were past the end of history, you know, to quote Fukushima, it, it's become much more, more tense and, you know, uh, you know, uh, less comfortable. But in universe, it was around the sort of period where Gene Roddenberry's health got to a point where he could no longer influence the show and the direction it take. And, you know, Gene was very clear that the Federation is a utopia. You know, we do not have conflict between humans. Generally, everyone gets along pretty well. And so the type of storytelling changed after season three of uh, The Next Generation. You know, that's when we start to meet the Cardassians. We get Deep Space Nine coming along. We get Voyager. And, and the, the entire kind of tone shift is, yeah. in my estimation, a response to, to Wolf 359. And I think the fact that we're here 30 odd years later and you know even in universe with picard season three it's still talking about it you know it's it's still this pivotal moment bernd um talking about the wolf project on your website how did it come along did you start Mm. it or was it started Mm. by your contributors uh I can't tell exactly. It was uh, sometime in uh, 1998, 1999, uh, when I was uh, talking about, uh, I think at the Flair uh, forums, uh, I was talking about the best of both worlds and trying to uh, to identify the wreckage. And there was more, more like a rumor of what models have been uh, uh, present, most notably a, a, a slideshow that... Uh, Mike Okuda showed at a convention. There was a verbal uh, description of the slideshow. And uh, so uh, some fan designs were created, I think, for the uh, Rigel class, similar to the Galaxy class. Uh, so that there were first attempts to reconstruct what is visible on screen. We tried to bring it together, the description and the screen caps. Uh, screen caps were really uh, blurry and uh, they, it didn't really allow to recognize anything. You could kneel in front of the TV and try to make out details 
we actually did that. Uh, and uh, I don't know who it was, but someone approached Michael Kuda. Oh, can we talk about Wolf 359? And he, he gave us quite valuable answers. He gave his own description of the slideshow which was different from what was reported so far. At some point, we also managed to get a few pictures of uh, of the ships that were uh, uh, actually uh, present, like the USS Chekhov. Um, and uh, so these uh, uh, ships all uh, uh, popped up one by one uh, and uh, were included in the in the article. And then you uh, invented some new ships or new characters for the book? Oh, I had to create new ships because we know there were 40 starships that were present at World 359. Um, so I took the list uh, off of uh, Bird's site of the ones that we had been positively identified. Uh, and yeah, I, I think uh, it comes to about 20 or so names. Uh, yeah. Uh, so mm, 17 right. in, in total. Uh, and so after that, it was a case of fleshing out myself. And I knew that I wanted mm. the hood to be the survivor for narrative reasons. And it, it's been suggested the Hood had been at 359 in other media, what have you. So that was one of them. After that, it was, yeah, it was just, I could, I could make up pretty much whatever ship names I wanted to. So one of the things I tried to do is I tried to avoid just kind of Western Navy sounding names. You know, I, I wanted to include names, which, you know, a bit more re representative of other cultures on Earth, but also other members of the Federation. So, you know, we have a USS Salaya. Uh, named after Mansalea. Um, we had uh, a Shran, because everyone needs a Shran in their fleet at some point or another. Um, and yeah, we just kind of, uh, you know, fleshed it out. It was, a, it was a lot of fun. There's a few Easter eggs in there. There's some references to, uh, to other ships from other genres and other, um, series in there. But, uh, yeah, I, I, oh, and the USS Righteous as well, because I loved the Star Trek board game when I was a kid growing up. You know, the full motion video one with John Delancey. So I had to have the Righteous in there as well. The great thing about Star Trek Borg is it's an FMV game. So they basically filmed an episode and at periods you can interact with it. I maintain it's John DeLanche's best, best performance as Q is in that game. And you can watch it on YouTube. It's well worth it. But it is hilarious. Uh, you know, if, if you get some time, go and just watch the video because it's, it's great. <laughs> I remember the quote. Vaporized. Yeah, you, you've got a, a task to go to something. You, you take the wrong direction and you walk out into a corridor and all of a sudden Q is there in a Hawaiian shirt with a hat, two women on his <laughs> arm. And then the ship's captain comes out in a steward's outfit, serves him a drink and then walks off and Q just goes, why? And then pushes you back into the turbo lift. So, yeah. Shizma, what about you? Um, did you remember anything about the Wolf 359 incident? Have you seen it on TV when it was shown for the first time on German television? Or do you have any recollections of engaging the Borg, so to say? I think when I first became tracky, it was like maybe when Voyager started. And uh, I think the next generation was on a rerun at the time. Um, and I can remember there was a lot of talk about Wolf 359 and it was like a, a very pivotal moment, as you say. Um, but I must say, like the episode is gorgeous, of course, but I remember that I was a little, a, a little disappointed. Like we didn't see any of that. But on the other hand, like they could have ruined it, like they could have made it a pew pew, uh, Star Wars, uh, incident and they didn't. And I think that's mostly a good choice. 
from the production point of view, it was a very great effort to show us so many chips. And maybe that was the reason why they couldn't include a great battle because it was already difficult enough to have uh, so many Star Trek yeah. models. Yeah. Let's not mm. forget that was mm. real model work at that time. Yeah. There was mm. no computer graphics or mm. something yeah. like that. Mm. Motion control photography. So, uh, uh, if you uh, uh, watch a video, how it was how it was done uh, at the time, yeah. uh, you can easily understand the limitations. So, uh, for motion con control photography, uh, you have the uh, the starship model uh, mounted on a rod. You move it on uh, some kind of rail, and uh, you can make passes across the camera. There were a lot of different passes filmed uh, to uh, to have some diversity in the shots. Uh, if you need two starships, uh, uh, you have um, you can film them at once, uh, or you have to uh, to to assemble increasingly complicated scenes. Because uh, each pass, even if it's uh, just a single starship, uh, is filmed uh, several times. Yeah, and, they took uh, uh, several gives, passes with internal yeah, lighting, yeah. external mm, lighting, yeah, all exactly. the shadows yeah. mm. and other yeah. effects. Mm. Yes, yes. And it and it explains uh, why in in a classic Star Trek everything is uh, more or less uh, moving in one plane. Uh, it has mostly mostly technical reasons. Uh, th there's no up to, up and down in space, but uh, uh, if you move a starship, oh, okay, you can't uh, move it in all kinds of di directions. For me, back in the days with TNG, the Borg were some of the ultimate enemies. So there's nothing against the Borg. You can't uh, defend yourself against the Borg. And I think the production uh, uh, noted this at uh, some time that the Borg were too strong. Andy, what are your thoughts about the Borg? I described the Borg as a Lovecraftian horror in the sense that they are, in, in TNG, they're effectively unknowable. There's a, there's a quote in the book where we have Dr. Pulaski saying, she can't tell you what is a Borg. You know, a, is a Borg the nanobot? Is it the drone? Is it the ship? You know, is it collected? Yeah. You know, mm -hmm. this, this is the sense about the Borg. In TNG, the Borg really are, the, the, you know, they, they are an unstoppable Lovecraftian kind of horror. But to, to, to try and comprehend it will truly drive you insane. By the time we get to Voyager, they're just filling up a week. Uh, and I think that's kind mm -hmm. of tragic, you know. I, I understand why they brought the Borg Queen in for first contact, but the second you start you know, humanizing it, yeah. in, in a mm, sense, you give yeah. it a structure that you can kind of understand. You mm. rob it of that mystery and, you know, that, that, that sense of menace to it. it. It was, you know, Q Hugh is, is still to this day one of the great episodes of Star Trek and the way the Borg are introduced in, in, in the sense of, you know, you can't differentiate between the drones in the alcoves and the ships itself. You know, they, they are one and the same. Mm -hmm. It's effectively the ship is sending its white blood cells out to attack you. And, and, and that what is what I really wanted to try and capture some of that sense into it as well. We have some yeah. sections in the book where we interview you as a former Borg trying to describe a Borg perspective and uh, what, what the collective is like as well. There was also a bit where we have data when he plugs into the collective to, to put them to sleep. Uh, and, I, and I was trying to write that and it's like, well, I don't know how to describe yeah. that because I can't possibly understand that. So I just had data basically mm -hmm. say, I can't, it's like trying to explain red to someone who is blind. You know, you just, the, the words yeah. just don't exist. 
So, so for me, the Borg are at their best when they're an unknowable, um, an unknowable force that is just uh, kind of beyond the comprehension. Uh, so uh, we kind of modeled the book off of uh, Studs Terkel, but The Good War, uh, or what's probably more commonly known is World War Z by Max Brooks. But effectively what it is, is it's a series of interviews, and the interviews tell you the story of the first encounter with the Borg at Kyuhu. Well, no, that's, that's complicated, but it tells you like mm. from Kyuhu, mm. uh, and there's interviews with people like Guinan, like Sonia Gomez, who was on the Enterprise at the time there. We have interviews with the president's chief of staff. Uh, there's interviews with people. And so, and so the first couple of chapters are just kind of like introducing to the world and, you know, what was the Federation like before the Borg showed up? Um, we have an interesting Romulan perspective throughout the book as well, because, you know, the Borg come in from Romulan space. In uh, the episode mm-hmm. The Neutral Zone, yep. we have the Romulan show up and they're saying, well, someone's yep. stolen all of our colonies as well. And if there's something, I don't know if people have perhaps clocked onto this, but the Romulans are very au fait with Borg technology. You know, in Picard, they have the artifact, right. which is a Borg cube that they've gotten. In the 09 films, the Nevada is a Romulan mining vessel retrofitted mm-hmm. with Borg technology. So there's a lot going on with the Romulans and Borg that no one's talking about. So we decided mm-hmm. to talk about that. Um, and we kind of weave it. So if you read the book, it will tell you the story from the beginning to um, kind of post. It, it's framed from an author's perspective who's looking back at the events 30 years later. And we kind of set that uh, a few years before Picard season one. And we have a little mm-hmm. coda section where we finally have an interview with Jean-Luc Picard after Picard mm-hmm. season one, where he kind of has come to terms with the reality mm-hmm. of himself yeah. as an XP. But yeah, uh, it, it, it's just... a interviews from various people when you get into the wolf 359 section though uh, we also include flight data recorders so if you remember in star trek 3 kirk is reviewing the flight mm-hmm. data recorders from the yeah. enterprise to see that we think about the 24th century these are fully immersive holographic simulations effectively so you can put mm-hmm. you right in the place mm-hmm. of the ships at wolf yeah. 359 to see what happens so uh, yeah uh, that's pretty horrific i made a lot of people cry reading those sections so uh, <laughs> You didn't write the book uh, uh, on your own. Did you do, do it with a co-author? And how long did you work on the book? So, yeah, uh, I, I wrote it along with my co-author, Eric Muirhead, um, who is a uh, an active U.S. Army colonel. I think he's a colonel. If you're not a colonel, Eric, I'm sorry, but it's U.S. ranks. Um, but, yeah, uh, I, I, I worked with him uh, as my co-author for the most part of it. Uh, we, we split things fairly evenly. You know, I'd write stuff and send it over to him. He'd write stuff and send it back to me. Uh, we also had some other contributors. Uh, there's John Conker, who writes The Edge of Midnight, which is a uh, a historical retelling of the Federation Klingon Cold War from Discovery and um, Enterprise. He wrote uh, a lot of the appendices and things for us which are in, the world, uh, in, in the real world. Uh, Haim Ardikian, who writes uh, a, a series of books called The Oniaka Free Project, which is about the XBs after Picard and everything that happens there. Uh, they contributed stuff and kind of punched up the few sections to, to, to give them a bit more insight and telling there. And Claude Berabi, who is the director of the US Navy Academy Museum, he wrote a section, uh, talking about some of the lessons learned after Wolf 359 and, you know, how the Defiant came about, basically. Um, so yeah, there was, there was a few people contributed towards the book. Uh, Thomas Moroni, who does, um, uh, a lot of the stuff on Star Trek Online. He designed the Enterprise F, uh, as well. Uh, he was a, a consultant kind of throughout, you know, you know, he'd feedback with ideas and stuff. Um, 
No, just just to make sure when I was saying things like the Akira class was around before Wolf 359, he was going like, yes, of course it was. So yeah, we were happy with that. Yeah. And did you uh, start with individual articles and then glued them together into the overarching or did you first design the overall arc and then filled in the gaps? We always knew, you know, the battle itself is kind of like we knew that was kind of front and center in the book. So so we knew that was going to be there. Uh, I think the first uh, interview I actually wrote was, I think it was Sonia Gomez. I think I wrote Gomez's uh, one was the first one I wrote because she's there in Q-Who. Uh, and, and, you know, she, she's, she's on the, you know, she, she, she's, she's a young officer. She's built hot cocoa on Picard. And then all of a sudden she's dealing with the Borg and 18 of her friends being killed. And so that was kind of like, to give you that ground floor perspective of what of a Borg like when you don't know about the Borg. Uh, I also did a Guinan interview as well because, you know, we know Guinan has a history with a Borg as do the, uh, the Elorians. Uh, and so we went through that. We wanted as much as possible to avoid interviewing people who are very prominent in the episode because you can see that in the episode. You can go and watch it. There's some instances where we have to do that because, you know, only Worf and Data go onto the Borg Cube to retrieve Locutus. So one of them has to do that bit. But that aside, we tried to tell perspectives and interview people who aren't necessarily present um, in the episodes and, and kind of around the periphery. About the Borg Queen, do you include oh, no, the Borg we don't Queen? Mention We don't mention um, the Queen at all. So it's not Queen ah, in our okay. book. <laughs> ah, okay. Uh, mm. I mean, that's not the saying it's not nope. there. It's just from mm. the perspective of the people yeah. who are yeah. being interviewed. Mm. Um, Bernd, you're the oldest and the most senior um, member of the Star Trek community uh, in this panel. Um, let's talk a little bit. How did the Star Trek fandom change from the early days uh, to now? Uh, Bernd, I think you started with mm -hmm. TOS, with the original series. Yeah, actually, yes. I, I was already present when it first aired in Germany in 1973. And, uh, of course, I... Uh, um, noticed all the changes from this uh, let's say first generation to the next generation to the newest generation uh, so uh, in in these uh, three uh, uh, eras i can't tell much about fandom of the 70s and 80s 70s i was too young uh 80s i was not so much into uh, into it one reason is uh stuff was hard to to come by you could buy uh, books you you had to wait until something was shown on tv you could uh, buy uh, video cassettes that were quite expensive uh, at the time Uh, 1996 was was the year when I got connected and the year that uh, that started it all. The online fandom was created mid mid 1990s uh, with the with the first websites. I participated pretty early on and then launched my own my own site. What was the fandom like online? It was uh, in discussion forums, news groups, websites. Uh, uh, people were uh, happy if they could find pictures, could find news. Uh, everything was uh, somehow more valuable than it is today. You, you told me earlier you were buying magazines, imported magazines back in the time. 
Uh, yeah, it was. Um, uh, I got the uh, a Star Trek the the magazine from USA. A fellow fan bought them and sent them uh, uh, to me for a couple of years, and that was an opportunity for me to to get more firsthand information because at that time uh, there were no good official channels. There was a, a, a Star Trek dot com website, but uh, ah, with little uh, uh, news uh, and uh, uh, no real database. This um, magazine had interviews, those news, and had uh, those uh, schematic diagrams that I loved to scan and publish at EAS. And did, did you get in contact with Star Trek via the television series or did you buy the DVDs? My parents were huge uh, Star Trek fans and we had the motion picture on VHS at a time when it cost something like 80 pounds to have a VHS tape, you know, but these were not, you know, you know, two things to have. So, so, so Star Trek has been a part of my life pretty much, you know, as, as long as I have been around. Uh, I, uh, when we were at junior school, uh, we had to build spaceships for an event and everyone's building like rockets, you know, out of juice bottles and all that. I built the Enterprise out of two paper plates, a McDonald's cup, a Robertson's juice bottle, two bits of cardboard <laughs> and a couple of toothpaste uh, boxes <laughs> on the side with an egg cup on top of a bridge because, you know, you have to have a bridge on the other top there. Um, and, uh, you know, like, when, when I was at school, I, I, I wasn't popular. I wasn't good at sport. So I would sit in the playground reading the Star Trek The Next Generation Technical Manual. So, you know, I, 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 I will... I, I will happily say that I, I was definitely into Star Trek uh, for, for the longest possible time. So, so when I moved into online space and online communities, the first ones I sought out were the Star Trek ones. Uh, I, I used to frequent a website called spacebattles.com, which had people who would have videos of like the Battlestar Galactica fighting against Omegas from Babylon 5 and ships from Star Trek. And uh, I ended up running that site for a little while um, uh, after that. So, so yeah. Um, I, I won't claim I've been in the fandom since since day one. Obviously, I wasn't there for um, mm. the original series, but certainly mm. in terms of the online spaces, mm. yeah. I've pretty much been there since the online spaces were there mm. to a certain extent, one way or the other. Mm. And uh, Alex, how did you transition to the online spaces and meet the fandom there? Uh, pretty much with Memory Alpha, the German Memory Alpha, yes. That was like my... Oh, like the first time I, I maybe had discussions with other fans. Back then, official websites didn't provide any really interesting things that changed with the, what, what they what they call the web 2.0. I don't know when everyone started to contribute stuff and not only like people who hosted stuff, uh, like, to, to, like official sources, I don't know. I can remember vividly diagrams of like made up ships. Right now I'm asking myself, where did they take the the information from maybe i just learned from like yeah it was there was a description of it somewhere and someone decided to make it like a crude pixel graphic that somehow found its way on, on websites that described ships and ship classes i i think i was into a website also a german website that tried to uh, get information on all the the where on all the ships just like oh we have the registry numbers so we approximately know how many ships there are and we know that like certain classes of ships are in specific ranges of uh, registry numbers and that was super interesting to me like uh, maybe it speaks to uh, like how fleshed out the universe was already back then 
Mm-hmm. And did you participate in uh, some forums uh, then later on? Like I'm a wiki person. I uh, I contribute to to wikis in general. Maybe we can talk a little bit about how the wiki changed over time. Shesma, you had the most experience of all of us working actively on memory alpha. I know the early times I was there to start the German version. And uh, at first, everything started on a private website. Then we moved to the hoster, Wikia, Wikicities. Now it's fandom.com. Uh, how did you experience all the changes all the time? I think at the beginning, the website looked super crude, like all the wikis looked exactly the same, just different colors. Uh, the technology got better and we got we were able to upload vector graphics and uh, things became prettier like the resolution of the the footage mm-hmm. we we got uh, we got high resolution like dvd resolution the web became more and more like the thing that i would have expected official websites to be like at some point like uh, this uh, wikia got involved i think they I didn't notice it at first because when you were, um, when you had an account, you didn't see the ads and all the stuff. And if you have an ad blocker, you don't see the ads either. But once you notice like how everything looks when you like see it as a regular person without an ad blocker, you became, I, I became a little disillusioned with the whole project. I thought maybe this project like this should be run by a nonprofit. Speaking um, of a non-profit website, uh, Bernd, I just wonder how mm-hmm. do you, run your website do you have a sponsor mm. or no no sponsor no donations i uh can can pay for everything myself which uh which isn't too much i need a a, a server uh I, i have a good friend uh, who is doing this for almost uh almost 20 years by now who has set up uh, the the basics server architecture of, of, of for me because I, I don't know anything about servers i just know how to set up a, a website on a server it's a nice price for the uh, uh, hosting um, and then i need uh, the uh, domain names so that's pretty much pretty much all uh, plus uh, of course uh, hardware software Alex, uh, Shesma, you already uh, told us you left Memory Alpha when the German Memory Alpha got split up into two different wikis, one with fandom.com and another independent wiki, which is hosted on a private server. I think it had to do with layout changes. I can't, honestly, I can't really remember. It had to do with layout changes that the fandom or wiki are made back then. And I personally was a little annoyed by the whole discussion and I somehow lost the interest it's not that i met with someone or that i uh, like uh, the, the the fork i i noticed later that a fork exists but i didn't pay much attention to it because uh, okay um like the the german memory alpha or memory alpha in general is run by a by a company and that's that's how it is but like uh, the fork is run by somebody that i don't know and not like probably not agree with in like in every way so i somehow became like disinterested in the whole thing Bernd, i think you already had a look on memory alpha over the years how it changed and uh how, how do you see the changes over the time mm-hmm. uh, so uh as uh, schisma already mentioned uh in the beginning it was uh, rather crude like The whole internet wa- was was at the time the, the most important thing that uh, that happened. It was uh, filled with 
information. So uh, uh, so that is uh, to me uh, matters a lot more than uh, how it how it exactly uh, uh, looks because uh, as long as it remains usable, I can find e everything. Uh, memory Alpha doesn't need the perfect look uh, uh, it's an awesome uh, uh, resource and people would use it anyway uh, even if it were was a bit uh, uh, old-fashioned so uh, i did like the the, the old uh, layouts has a reason of why i uh, i like the the old layouts better because as already mentioned uh, without an ad blocker you have videos playing and uh, it's uh, it's really annoying Yes, it used to be better for the visitor, for the contributor. On the other hand, uh, uh, there are a lot, a lot of uh, more functions. Uh, I have to admit, I didn't really try the the editor as it is now, where, where you can do as, as uh, more like what you see is what you get. Unlike in in ancient times when you had to uh, memorize a certain markups uh, to to format your your article. It's uh, easier to get into the the wiki with uh, with this uh, what you see is what you get uh, editor. Uh, I personally uh, never had a problem with the markup. Uh, only tables in classic uh, markup they are tricky. Uh, uh, tables in HTML are actually a lot easier than in wiki markup. Yeah, and Andy, you completely did a, a different approach with having a paper book or a PDF book uh, in contrast to an interactive site. Uh, also, probably the style was very much in the uh, foreground. What was your leading decision to do a PDF book rather than an interactive website? Uh, because I have zero skills when it comes to web design. Zero, less than zero. It, it's just, this is black magic. You know, Websites exist, people do stuff, and then people can interact with them. I would love to get a really cool like L cars mm. interactive mm. website where you click on stuff and pages if oh, mm. Mm. coding web design anything like that it just mm. does doesn't sit whatsoever so mm. so I, I I decided to write the story mm. uh, and then working with Heimat Dickian uh, they was able to turn it into to, to, to really beautiful um, L cars display so if, if yeah. you read the book mm. especially on the um, yeah. uh, tablet mm. it is like you're mm. reading it on a pad which is yeah. which is great and. Mm. Again, yeah. I don't think this don't think this will come across because my camera's blurred. But I just mm. you, know, you can kind of see yeah. in, mm. in the book. It's so that is that is really uh, it looks fantastic. Yeah, thank you. Yeah. Uh, and I, I'd love a website which can kind of convey that. Mm. Just not got a clue how to do it. Um, mm. And uh, I'm a big believer in paying people for their work. Where you know every, everyone mm. who contributes towards the, to to the book, you know, I, I made I made sure I compensated them for their time. Yeah, I see. Um, mm. I can't afford to pay someone to do the website that I want to have mm. to to do that. Mm. So uh, yeah. you have to read the PDF. Stick on your tablet. <laughs> Speaking of model building, a uh, little change of topic, uh, model building. Uh, Shisma Alex, uh, do you have Star Trek models? Have you built Star Trek models at any time? No, not really. I would, I would love to have some like tin model or something like that looks cast or something, but I, I'm not happy with what I have seen uh, for purchase. <laughs> But, but you have made uh, several 2D variants of, of the models yes. in the form of yes. your schematics. Uh, how mm -hmm. did you end up doing these? Back then I discovered 
that you can do a lot of things with vector graphics. You can plot it on like t-shirts. You can blow up the resolution and you can do tiny little details like the, the airlock, like the, and the markings around the airlock and the text next to the airlock. And it doesn't matter. It doesn't increase the file size. That's why I, um, there was this Star Trek fact files and it was cool mm -hmm. and they had vector graphics, but we obviously they were digital. Like you couldn't blow them up and check what's written on the, on the escape pods and stuff. And I wanted to have this. I, I think I'm not sure I achieved it. I like, I, uh, I hadn't that much time, but I noticed that you like, you can remove, you, you can reuse a lot of parts, like, like the warp missiles from one ship class and put it on a different ship class. Sometimes you have to resize, rescale the windows and that's, that's it. Like Starfleet around that time. Had a specific style. It had these like galaxy class shapes and just rearranged it in different mm -hmm. um, yeah. configurations. Mm -hmm. And it feels, uh, it feels very uh, consistent. Like we decided to have this design for this period of time. I don't know why. Um, and I, um, I wanted to, to capture like this fascination, like with, mm -hmm. yeah. Some of the design. some of these uh, the, of these kit bash, uh, bashes from from the time, especially around uh, Galaxy class, they they look mm -hmm. really great, as, uh, mm -hmm. such as uh, New Orleans class. I, I know we wanted to talk about models, but staying with the topic, probably on band on your side, you also have a large database with size comparison charts. And uh, where did you take your pictures there? Did you also redraw them or have them redrawn by some contributor? Very different sources. Uh, I always try to find the best uh, uh, side views, preferably uh, side views that are uh, drawn and not uh, uh, CGI, because uh, recently you you can have everything as uh, as uh, CGI, but for those uh, ships that uh, existed as uh, uh, physical models, I prefer uh, the uh, drawn side views. Sources are Star Trek Fact Files, uh, Star Trek the Magazine. Some few are drawn by me. My 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 skills are limited in in this regard, and uh, some are drawn by uh, several other uh, contributors. So uh, sources are very different and I try to keep them halfway consistent as a uh, uh, style is uh, uh, concerned. Yeah, but now to the yeah. model ship. So I, in, yeah. in your screen, I, I see already at least one small mm. enterprise and I don't see what, uh, what what's behind there. So uh, uh, what do you me? have? Do, do, do What do you have in your fleet, in your physical fleet? Okay, just uh, just one, one example. So um, my model building, it dates back some 20 years. I, I think I haven't built anything uh, since then. The top of my closet was full. And uh, I uh, didn't want to, to buy all kinds of shelves uh, for for the model, so I said, "Okay, that's it for now." Well, wow, this is one one of my 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 favorite models, of course, uh, Enterprise E. I I already talked about the fascination of uh, Star Trek: First Contact, and when that ship came out in a movie, it was obvious I also had to build it. On the topic of models, uh, we we should not forget uh, the Eagle Moss models because they released a lot of ships that uh, that hadn't been available as a as a model so so far and uh, i already talked about this this one uh, the chekhov uh, a springfield class 
that is more or less directly based on what we found out some 20 years ago in the Wolf 359 research project. And uh, uh, we finally got some some pictures of the uh, of the ship several years later and uh, it was then uh, built by eagle moss uh, including this this obscure pod that we found out about uh, um, much much later and are you a model builder yourself do you have eagle moss models well let me put it this way uh, if we're still recording in an hour and 15 minutes i'm dropping off to go and grab myself an excel cerritos model but when soon as that drops um You know how it is. When something's freely available, you don't really care about it. You know, I'll get to it at some point. And then Eagle Mess went boss. So now every time there's a drop, I'm like, I'm getting the ships I want. If we were, if I was at home when we were recording this, because again, I'm, I'm, I'm out at the minute. I have a cabinet behind my desk filled with Eagle Moss spaceships, uh, with some Bandai ships. I've got the Enterprise A and the Enterprise E from Bandai. I've got Battlestar Galactica ships. I've got an Astroma. I've got a thing for big gray bricks. So I have a lot of kind of like Babylon 5, Battlestar Galactica, Stargate ships in there. Um, so yeah, I love models. I mean, I used to build model planes when I was a kid. I build model battleships now as well. So I have models of HMS Hood and HMS King George V, uh, that I built as well. Um, so yeah, I, I, I love, I love building models. I'm a huge fan of Bill Krauss and his work and Bill. Uh, you know, we've yeah. spoken mm. graciously, allowed yeah. me to use uh, the USS Endeavour uh, as one of the ships uh, lost at 359. Um, and, you know, seeing that he was then able to contribute ships, which, you know, ultimately became Enterprise G. I may disagree with uh, creative choices on the show, but I cannot follow the model work or Bill's designs at all. It was absolutely fantastic. And just to go back to the point you were making about designs, I'll, I'll send you this as a JPEG if you want as well. But Yeah. But we have all of the uh, the ships lost at 359, and that was done by Steve Johnson, who is the illustrator for the book. Uh, and he actually arranged the uh, the ships to scale inside a Borg cube. So when you look at the image, you've got a Borg cube and then 40 starships all fit inside that silhouette. Um, I think your book is um, freely available online. Is it true? Mm -hmm. It is true. I can't sell it, so you can have it for free. Mm -hmm. Enjoy. You can't <laughs> sell it? Why can't you sell it? Because it's fan fiction. I can't sell ah, it. Ah, okay. No But you printed the book. So you would need a license to, to be able to, to sell it. Uh, you, you have Paramount, CBS, who kind of oversee everything. Uh, and then two companies kind of deal with the book side of things. Titan Books deals with the non-fiction Star Trek books. So things like the, the autobiographies, uh, the Ains manuals, anything that's kind of more of a technical bent mm -hmm. uh, is one by then. And then Simon and Sushla have the, uh, the narrative license for all the fiction books mm -hmm. and everything. 20 odd years ago, they did engage with fan authors and bring them into the fold. Uh, Una McCormick started out as a fan fiction writer who was then brought in and she's written some absolutely fantastic works of, of Star Trek fiction now. But it's now such that they tend to just want to work with established authors that they know and just write beats hmm. that they want to be hit, basically. They want, okay, we need, we need a story to kind of fill a bit this whole go off and write the story. And, mm. and again, taking nothing away from the authors, you know, I'm a huge yeah. fan of David Mack and Jane Swallow and uh, uh, Keith Decania. You know, many, many of them, I, I love the work they're doing, but, but the, the 90s and the 2000s was a really exciting time for Trek literature. There was some amazing stuff out there. I love, I love the literary universe. I am so salty about what they did in Star Trek Coda. If you ever do a podcast about that, bring me back. I have thoughts. But you know, 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, 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 Memory Alpha is fantastic, but Memory Beta is where I lived. I love Memory Beta. The, the mm-hmm. Hansu books exploring the Romulans, I love those. The DC comics, the DC comics are great because they basically have this idea that between Star Trek 3 and 4, they go off and have an entire adventure with Kirk in command of the Excelsior, and they do all this kind of crazy stuff. But then when Star Trek 4 comes around, they have to be on Vulcan with a Klingon ship, so they kind of... Mm-hmm. Do this whole thing to get there. I love it. I have references to some of the characters in there in the book. So mm-hmm. I, I love the, mm-hmm. the novels and the literature and all that. I'd love, I would love for this to be canon. Uh, can you describe uh, just a few sentences? What is Star Trek Codor? We're all familiar with the concepts of canon and, and everything. You know, you have the prime timeline, the canon timeline, the ones that's on the TV show. Uh, then there was the literary universe and the literary universe. There's been Star Trek novels running since pretty much day one, but it kind of really formed into a cohesive canon of its own after Enterprise ended when they knew, they knew there was going to be no more stories post Nemesis. That was going to be the end. So mm. there's adventures on the Enterprise E. Picard mm. is married. He has a kid with Beverly mm-hmm. Crusher. Riker is in command of the Titan and off going, doing his thing. Uh, and then when Picard came around, it complicated things a little bit. And uh, they sent down the order that they wanted to end the literary universe, to end that canon so that the novels going forward would tie up with what's been done mm-hmm. on screen since then. There was many ways they could have chosen to do this. They chose to do it in a way which I did not like. Um, your mileage may vary on that. Um, but yeah, I have many thoughts on Star Trek Coda. Mm-hmm. We don't have enough time here, as in the whole other mm-hmm. podcast. Uh, mm-hmm. there. But yeah. Um, online. Yeah. <laughs> Coming back to your book, uh, it's uh, mm-hmm. online available on mm-hmm. wolf359project.com, I think. It's correct. And, uh, it's you on have Twitter a as well. Physical print of your book in your hand. And yes. uh, how many and why and how did you do this? Uh, so, how many? Uh, I printed 20 copies uh, because that was the smallest number I could print. Um, and I wanted to, I wanted to hold it. I wanted to have, you know, a physical copy myself. I wanted a book with my name on it. You know, that, that, that was, that was something I wanted to do. Uh, but a huge amount of people have messaged me really wanting a physical copy, which, you know, uh, we are exploring options to do it. You know, we have to tread very carefully because, you know, we do not own a license and, and, you know, we don't want to upset anyone. Um, so the plan is, you know, for cost of printing, offering a small run it will be a small run and it will be a one-time thing we'll, we'll, we'll do a small run for people um yeah if you follow us on twitter the, again if you go to the web page there's a uh, a link tree thing there there's an interest list if you sign up to the interest list when we know how much it'll cost to do the small run we'll let you know you pay for the printing you get a book out of it we're not making any money out of it it is literally just to cover the printing costs that's expensive I could tell you how much it cost. It is. Um, I got a quote to how much it cost to print 200 of these. And I'm like, I cannot afford that. Bernd, <laughs> mm. did you ever consider printing one of your project subsites, uh, to have it physically in, in your hand? There is, uh, there is actually a, a, a Starfleet museum book for printing at cost price. I, 
admit I didn't order it. Uh, Dan composed it based on Masao's work. This uh, should still be available, or uh, if not, I have to remove the link. Uh, uh, so the, this is the one that is available. The rest, uh, uh, the main site EAS, uh, it makes no sense to uh, to, uh, to print it out. I usually change like uh, a 20, 30 pages per week, even if it's just a, a typos. I wouldn't want to give it to a, to, to a printing press and have all this uh, a half-baked stuff uh, on paper or even worse to know that people will have this half-baked stuff on paper that I would want uh, to, to fix. There's a Stuffy Museum book. Uh, very interesting. I suggested it to Mazao at one point, but uh, he then declined the, uh, the idea. But for the very same reason as you stated. Uh, so I think he was not um, done with writing all the uh, articles that he had in mind. Unfortunately, it's uh, it's been quite some time since I've been in contact with uh, with Masao. He's a bit. Uh, he seems to have switched his interests a, a bit. Uh, but uh, uh, but uh, Dan has taken care of the articles and of that book, uh, and perhaps it's it's still available. Jan, do I have any questions uh, further? Because I'm out of questions at the moment. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I was having the very same uh, idea. Yeah. So, um, mm -hmm. yeah, I think this, uh, I learned something today. There's a Masao Okazaki uh, Starfleet Museum book that is uh, the highlight of my day. So, <laughs> uh, for everyone who hasn't uh, looked into that, uh, please have a look. It's, it's great. I uh, think it's better than uh, enterprise at least i thought mm. about that uh, back time mm. if you look closely mm. at one point you might even find uh, some reference by some local guy um whatever mm. and uh, uh, you you mean uh, you you designed one one of the ship uh, uh, logos i designed one of the ship logos yeah yes. I, i i know which one yeah Well, again, just as I said earlier, I, I couldn't have done it without the work of people like Bernd and, and Memory Alpha. And, you know, it's not just me. It does, there's, there's, there's other fan alphas out there. It's an invaluable resource. And, you know, I mm. think writers, you know, absolutely should take advantage of it. You know, in, in addition to the 359 project, there's the Edge of Midnight, which I said is the Klingon one. And I know John mm. just kind of pours over, you know, your site, especially with the original series stuff as well and pulls his hair out as well when it comes up to. You know, especially now with Strange New Worlds is going on as well, and you have dealing with things like McGord and everything, and he's got to try and make sense of how does these things kind of mm. all connect. Um, mm. So, yeah, it's uh, we couldn't do it without people like you, Ben. So thank you very much. You're welcome. <laughs> Yeah. So uh, we we talked about uh, how fandom has uh, has changed uh, earlier. Uh, I I think we didn't really address uh, uh, how uh, how it may, may have changed. But uh, but something that has not changed is that uh, fans do care for for the franchise in all uh, 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 kinds of uh, forums, uh, websites, and uh, that uh, that will uh, will still go. Uh, go on and uh, uh, it's great to have that new uh, canon uh, material to tend to even though i uh, sometimes may sound like oh uh, this is uh, this is reboot but uh, but actually uh, it's the kind of uh, of stuff that my site was made for uh, I, i could say that uh, after fun of viewing the episode comes uh, comes the fun of 
taking care of all all the details. So uh, just yesterday, uh, uh, season two finale of Strange New Worlds. It was the Gorn, and uh, there there will be some some topics that I uh, that I take care of. That's uh, that's essentially what uh, what keeps the the site alive and what uh, what keeps the fans talking. Let's close this uh, podcast with a little advertisement, an advertisement for my own podcast, because uh, we will have another recording with Bernd Schneider uh, shortly. Uh, it will be in German, but we have uh, English and German subtitles available for every show, every um, episode. And uh, in the next and sixth recording, sixth season, we will talk about the future of Star Trek. I think this will be a very interesting topic and uh, maybe we will discuss even longer. I don't know. I'm very curious how this recording will be. And uh, Andy, Alex, Bernd, do you have something to plug, something you want to advertise? Oh. Come to the site. <laughs> Which site? <laughs> EAS, just uh, just the acronym. Uh, uh, people should know. Um, I wrote a book. I don't know if I've mentioned that or not, but uh, you, you, you can go and read that. It's, it's available for free to download, so go and check that out. Uh, there's also uh, a web ring we just started up called Tranquility Press, uh, which is tranquility.press. Um, that's just a fan web ring for fan fiction works like we have engaged the Borg or edge of midnight and things like that. And they're accepting submissions now as well. So if you have a world building project or something like the Starfleet museum book you were speaking about there, uh, you know, reach out to them. They'd love to host it and kind of help you get it out there for people to, to check it out and read it. And uh, yeah, uh, just engage with, engage with a fandom and engage with a minutia. That's, that's, that's where it's fun. Treat it, you know, dive in there, you know, treat it as a real world. That, that, that's where Star Trek's yeah. the most fun for me. So, uh, yeah, that's, that's all I'd have to plug. Alex, what about you? Mm -hmm. I have nothing to plug now. But uh, we have a lot to thank you because you were a little bit of a last minute invite here. And of course, we have mm -hmm. to thank you for years of years of contribution for memory alpha. And I'm glad we had contributors like you and many many others to take this wiki to the mm -hmm. status we have right now thank you and thank all the other contributors mm -hmm. of memory alpha yeah. Yeah. i can only second that uh, yes uh, thank uh, alex uh, schisma thanks for coming in uh, at the last minute mm -hmm. as one of our mm -hmm. uh, uh, visitors today and also thank you uh, to andy and uh, bernd for uh, being in this uh, podcast and discussing about uh, mm -hmm. the fandom of uh, Star Trek. And of course, also uh, in advance, uh, thank you to Florian for uh, taking the material from this recording and turning it in mm -hmm. another nice podcast. And uh, I hope I see everyone mm -hmm. uh, again in the next uh, episode uh, when we talk about uh, the future of uh, Star Trek. Okay. So let's mm -hmm. uh, say goodbye with the greeting only Star mm -hmm. Trek fans will know. Uh, was it live long and prosper or may the force be with you? I'm unsure. Uh, it's time I to shut I down. I yeah. have to look it up. <laughs> <laughs> so live long and prosper. Live Thank you for prosper. participating. Thanks for arranging this. Bye. 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 Bye.